0: Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Job. As Al said, we hope to begin a series through the book of Job this morning, so we'll read the prologue, setting the stage in chapters 1 and 2, the narrative that sets the table for the dialogue that will happen over the next several chapters. Job chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. says there was a man in the land of uz whose name was job and that man was blameless and upright one who feared god and shunned evil and seven sons and three daughters were born to him also his possessions were 7000 sheep 3000 camels 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send... And sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, All that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Savians raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And Job arose, and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took for himself a pot with, uh with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity, curse God, and die? But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, for they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept that each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Beloved, as we begin this book, I, I trust I don't need to tell you that this is not a, a happy passage, as it ends with seven days of weeping, and the final words read, they saw that his grief was very great. But why? What's the, what's the purpose of Job's grief, and what's the purpose of the Lord telling us about it? In fact, telling us about it over 42 chapters while we often think that it's simply to comfort us in our suffering so that we might sort of see ourselves in Job and learn from him how to accept life's normal trials, I think there's something more going on here. Because as you read these opening chapters, two things become abundantly clear. One, there is nothing normal About Job. He's the greatest man in all the East, the most righteous man according to God's own testimony. And two, there's nothing normal about Job's suffering. Fire does not usually fall down from heaven and burn up your servants. Windstorms do not usually knock down the roof of your house and kill all of your children, much less on the same day. As one theologian writes, there is nothing ordinary about this story. It is extreme in every way. Job was not just your average believer who learned to cope with hardship by trusting in God. but He was the greatest, most pious man on earth who experienced more suffering than any man had ever endured. But by the end of the book, he was finally exalted by God to twice the status he enjoyed before. And not only is there nothing ordinary about Job, but Job in his humiliation unto exaltation points us to the supremely extraordinary one who was brought down from his preexistent state of glory to utter humiliation and ruin, but was then exalted to an even higher place than he was before. You hear the echo of Philippians chapter 2. That servant of God who was humiliated, then exalted and given an even higher name. Do you hear the echo of Luke chapter 24 where Christ says, was it not necessary for me to suffer these things and then enter into glory? And Christ says that pattern is given to us everywhere on the pages of the Old Testament. This pattern of exaltation, humiliation, exaltation, um, glory, suffering, and then greater glory. This is the messianic pattern. This is the the pattern that we find in the book of Job. And so the point of Job chapters one and two is not just uh, look at Job and, and respond like him when trials come. It's not even trust in divine providence and recognize that God in heaven might have a greater purpose in your suffering. But the ultimate point is this. Behold Jesus Christ, the greater Job, and recognize that God glorifies himself through the faithful suffering of his servants. Because until we see how Job points us to Jesus, we cannot understand anything of our suffering. For our suffering is a sharing with Christ in his. And so in that sense, Job does have something to do with us, but but it's not a, a generic statement about all human suffering in general. It is a specific statement about the suffering of the Lord's anointed and our suffering in him. So thinking a little bit uh, this week, this is, this is not uh, terribly unlike the Song of Songs, which we, we considered a few months back, the same sort of uh, Old Testament wisdom genre where the Song of Songs is not primarily given to us as a manual for marriage, but it's given to show us something of the great uh, messianic story, the unfolding drama of redemption. But then as, as we behold it and, and see that portrait of Christ, we do learn something about marriage from, from that book. And so here in Job, we do learn something about suffering and suffering well, but only once we have beheld the messianic pattern and uh, Christ-centered portrait that's being painted for us. So this morning we have three points. You see that God glorifies himself through the faithful suffering of his servant. First, we consider uh, Job as God's exalted servant. His exalted servant, his humiliated servant, and his faithful servant. As we consider Job's exalted status, we we notice that Job's renown was Uh, not the sort that we're used to um, in our world. We're used to specialists. We're used to men or women who excel in just one area and are known for that alone. Uh, But Job, we see, wasn't like that. His renown, his eminence, extended to every part of his life. His business empire was the envy of all the East. His reputation for how he treated his employees was unheard of as he was blameless and upright. He was above reproach. Uh, nor can it be said of this man that he gave his life to his work at the expense of his family, but he was a family man par excellence. He loved his children, and he loved his God. And both of these priorities, his love for God and his love for his children, are exhibited in his regular practice of offering sacrifices for each of his children just in case they might have sinned. It doesn't tell us that he had any reason to think that they had, but just in case they might have sinned and cursed God in their hearts, he offers sacrifices for them. He would intercede for them. This was Job. Unparalleled in righteousness and unparalleled in riches. So first we'll look at his righteousness. It says that he is blameless and upright in his dealings with others. And beyond that, that he fears God. And shuns evil, or what we might say in in, uh, later terms, speaking a bit anachronistically, he loves God and loves neighbor. He keeps the moral law that's written on his heart. But the way that verse 1 says he he fears God and shuns evil, more than just an impressive statement or or impressive compliment about Job's character, becomes a sort of catchphrase throughout the rest of the book. For God says it again of him in chapter 1, verse 8, Have you considered Job a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil? He says it again in 2 verse 3 that Job is a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And then as we we work our way through the drama of this book, we'll eventually come to chapter 28, sort of the the heart of the book in in this uh, speech that Job gives on the nature of true wisdom, where in the very conclusion of that speech, at the heart of the book, Job tells us that fearing God and shunning evil is wisdom. Job, by fearing God and shunning evil, shows us true wisdom. And this wisdom is going to be put to the test as he will be tempted to not fear God, but to hate him. As he will be tempted to not shun evil, but rather to welcome it, because shunning it doesn't seem to be getting him anywhere. And yet, still, he continues on his course. That's wisdom of fearing God and shunning evil even in the midst of suffering. And even in this, he points us to Christ who 1 Corinthians 1 says has become for us wisdom from God. has revealed that wisdom in the cross. Not only is Job the supremely righteous and wise one whom the Lord looks upon with delight or with favor and delights to speak of, but Job is also the supremely glorious one, the one whose riches are unsurpassed. Verse 3 calls him the greatest man in all the East, or um, you can actually translate that, um, the greatest man in antiquity. He is a man whose greatness and glory is unrivaled. You see his possessions in verse 3, it says that in addition to his seven sons and three daughters. He has 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. He has 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys. It's interesting, these these several different uh, numbers are given to us in these pairs, where each of these three pairs, when added together, bring us to uh, 10, 10, 10,000, and 1,000. Each of these are numbers of completion, numbers of Fullness. Job is not just a rich man. Job is not just the greatest man. Job is at the very height of fullness and glory. It wouldn't be far off if we would think of Job as a sort of king. In fact, chapter 29 even calls him a king. And the way that in chapter 29 it speaks of his, his justice and his righteousness, his deliverance of the poor and the fatherless, sounds an awful lot like the messianic king, of Psalm 72, the one we sang of just a little while ago. But Job 19.9 says that in his suffering, this king would lose his crown and be stripped of his glory. Again, not unlike the messianic king who would also be stripped and humiliated, training his, his heavenly crown of glory for a crown of thorns. And just as this a messianic king was not only a, a king, but also a priest. We, we see the same thing here in Job. What he's doing in verses four and five, is his, his children would host these feasts each on his appointed day. He would rise up early in the morning to offer a sacrifice for each of them just in case they'd sinned in their hearts. He is interceding for them. He's offering sacrifices for them. And some have noted in uh, verse one and verse eight, the, the Hebrew word, that speaks of him as being blameless, which is applied to Job in these verses, is derived from the Hebrew word, which finds its primary context in the sacrificial animals, which were without blemish, blameless, were perfect. And so the implication seems to be that that Job is the one who, in a sense, is without blemish and blameless. He is sacrificially or, or ceremonially pure, Which is what then makes his sacrifice before God acceptable. So that just as God does not deal with Job's friends according to their sins in chapter 42 after he intercedes for them, neither does God deal with Job's children according to their sins because of their righteous intercessor. The point is not that Job is sinless. But this portrait is being given to us in a way that is showing us in no uncertain terms that this is a righteous man whom God approves of, a man whom he speaks of as blameless. This righteous and exalted king is also a holy and blameless priest. And later on in the book, we'll, we'll see on a number of occasions, in chapter 9, in chapter 16, in chapter 19, where Job also prophesies of the great mediator to come, making him not only a priest and a king, but also a prophet. And James 5.11 says just that. It speaks of Job as among the prophets. But the main point here in these five verses, God shows us two things. He shows us the greatness of Job's glory in order to highlight the severity of his fall. And he shows us the greatness of Job's love for God in order to show us that his suffering is not because of his sin. Job's friends will be tempted to say that throughout the book, but three times in this, this opening prologue, one verse one, one verse eight, two verse three, God says again and again and again, this man is blameless and upright. The suffering that we're about to read of is not because of his sin, but it's because of God's glorious gospel purposes. And to so those gospel purposes, we now turn as we move from Job as God's exalted servant to Job as God's humiliated servant. Because as we move in verse 6 from the land of Uz to the courts of heaven, we see that it's not Satan who brings Job up to God. But boys and girls, did you notice as we were reading that it's God who suggests Job's name to Satan? There is this sort of odd language where um, Satan is, is not just referred to as Satan, but as The Satan. Literally, that would be the adversary or the accuser. And as this accuser, this um, enemy, this adversary, comes to present himself before God, verse 7, after going to and fro among the earth, presumably trying to turn God's people away from him, trying to wreak havoc in God's good creation. What is God's answer to the accuser? His answer is, Have you considered my servant Job? That's his answer in the face of the accuser. In the face of that great enemy, that great serpent's plotting against God's people and against God's plans and purposes in this world, God brings to his attention the exalted, blameless priest king. And he gives Satan free reign to afflict him. That's God's answer. That the exalted priest king would be humiliated and yet in his humiliation would remain faithful and in so doing would silence the accuser. That sounds an awful lot like Genesis 3.15. That God would raise up a champion who would be bruised and yet in so doing would uh, defeat the enemy, would silence him. That's why we can speak of God's gospel purposes in Job's suffering. God says, behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on him. And so in in verses 13 to 19, Satan gets to work. In verse 15, uh, we see those 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys are taken away by the Sabians, and his servants are killed. Job goes from fullness to nothing, just like that. And in the very same moment that the news of the Sabian raid is, is brought to Job, uh, another messenger comes and, and says to him, Job, the fire of God from heaven has burned up your 7,000 sheep and has killed your servants. And then another in verse 17 comes and says that Job's 3,000 camels have also been taken away, this time by the Chaldeans who kill the rest of the of his servants, so just like that, Job's riches evaporate, but at least he still has his children, until we read on to verse 18, when yet a fourth messenger comes with the saddest news of all, that while his children were feasting in their brother's house, a great wind came and and struck the house and brought down the roof of it on their heads, killing all ten of them so that now the fullness upon fullness that we saw in those numbers from verses two and three are erased. It says, Naomi said in Ruth chapter one, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And he says, he has afflicted me and brought misfortune upon me. And just as Naomi ascribes her emptiness to the Lord afflicting her, the the book of Job seems to place responsibility uh, in somewhat the same place. Because after Job continues to worship even in mourning and God says to Satan, look at my servant Job, God says, although you incited me against him to destroy him, he still holds fast his integrity. God says that he is the one who brought these calamities on Job. We see the same thing in Job 42 when it speaks of the adversity that the Lord brought upon him. And it's important that we recognize this dual responsibility of both God and Satan for Job's suffering, because if we lose the fact that it's God who afflicts him, then we lose the fact that it's a picture of the gospel. Verse 5, Satan says, stretch out your hand against him so God does, just as he would later stretch out his hand against another servant of his. And this is part of what makes Job's suffering so confusing for his friends to interpret throughout the rest of the book. Normally, when fire comes down from heaven, it is an unmistakable sign of God's judgment. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. or Look at the end of verse 19. Normally, it's God who is associated with the wind. God himself will appear in the wind in Job 38. The psalmist says, as we sang in Psalm 18, that God soars on the wings of the wind. At uh, Pentecost, the uh, tongues of fire come with the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Or the word in the Hebrew for wind is the same as the word for spirit, which we, we first find in Genesis chapter one. As the spirit of God or wind of God hovers over the waters and creates But here, the wind of God decreates, destroys. At least that's what it appears. Next, we see that Job is struck with uh, painful boils from the sole of his feet all the way to the crown of his head, uh, boils that, again, are normally associated with divine judgment. Boys and girls, you think of the, the ten plagues on the Egyptians. The sixth plague sounds a lot like what happens to Job here with these boils. The Lord appears to be pouring out his judgment on Job. We find these same judgments in the book of Deuteronomy. or in Deuteronomy 28, in that great catalog of blessings and curses that would come upon God's people based upon uh, whether they were faithful or unfaithful to his covenant. In in Deuteronomy 28, God says that the, the covenant curses he would bring upon his people would include... The destruction of their land, the loss of their livestock, bereavement of their children, and bodily sores and boils. In fact, Job chapter 2 verse 7 is word for word identical to Deuteronomy 28 when it says, the Lord will strike you with severe boils from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. God is bringing the same covenant curses that he would later unleash against Israel on Job. Um, Even the way that it speaks of his enemies as the Chaldeans, the same word that is used, for instance, in the book of Habakkuk to describe the Babylonians. Deuteronomy 28, um, right after the the boils, just a couple verses later, it says you will become an astonishment and a byword among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And, And Job, too, becomes a byword. He becomes a byword among his friends and as we'll see in, in later portions like Job 29, 30, among uh, all the peoples of the land. And so Eliphaz comes from, from Taman and, and Bildad comes from Shua and, and Zophar from Namah. and as they come near him, they are literally astonished. It says they see him and they cannot hold back the shrieking. And though they mourn of him for a week, he quickly becomes a byword among them. One is accused of, of sins that he has not committed. One who is uh, thought of as a transgressor is numbered among transgressors. God brings all the covenant curses on Job so much so that in Job 42, when Job is restored, it speaks of Job's restoration as God. Restoring his fortunes or literally turning his captivity. That's the exact same language from Deuteronomy 30 of God bringing Israel back from exile. Job has here become the outcast. He is suffering outside the camp in the ash heap in exile. And it's only going to be made worse once his friends open their mouths. Job, the righteous one, the exalted one, is brought low. He takes God's curse upon himself and is viewed as if he himself is cursed by God, just as Christ would be. Not even his family and his friends understand. His friends will quickly accuse him. His wife, who too has just suffered, says, stop holding on to your integrity, just curse God and die. And in the way in which Job is left very much alone in his suffering, not even his family and his friends' understanding, we, we see something of a shadow of Christ, whose disciples on the night of his betrayal would fall asleep in Gethsemane, whose right-hand man Peter would deny him three times, whose brothers, Mark chapter 3 tells us, think that he's out of his mind. Jesus cried out in mourning on the cross alone. And so Job must, suffer, must face his suffering alone. His children are gone. His own wife tells him to curse God and die. And his friends who at first seem as if they might be able to offer some comfort will only make things worse. Job's suffering is about as bad as it gets. Yet notice his faithfulness the whole time. Job chapter 1, verse 22, in all of this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And As much as his suffering and his loneliness and his bearing of the curse foreshadow Christ, nowhere does Job look more like Jesus than in his humble resignation to submit to God's afflicting hands. Jesus, lastly, that I consider God's faithful servants. We've considered Job and the way that he foreshadows Christ in his exalted position and then also his state of humiliation and now in his faithfulness through it all. And it is chapter one, verse 20. Following it says that Job, as he's just received this news of his children's death and he, he tears his robe, he shaves his head. Both of these are signs of mourning. He falls down to the ground and then it tells us he worships. And worshiping is not what you would expect him to do as as you read this verse when you hear of him tearing his robe, shaving his head in mourning, falling down to the ground. You don't expect that sentence to conclude in worship. That's what he does. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is where we get our theme that it's through the faithful suffering of God's servant that he is glorified. It's through Job holding on to his integrity that the accuser is silenced. It's in Christ remaining committed to his father's plan even in the midst of suffering. And as we too are called to share with Christ in his suffering, it is through our faithful resignation to submit to God's afflicting hand that the accuser is silenced once again. I understand this may sound like stoicism. I understand there may be some of you here this morning, perhaps you're visiting, and Job's response to the death of his children sounds like the absolute epitome of folly. But please don't misunderstand what this passage is calling us to. It's not telling us that when bad things happen or when we're called to suffer for the sake of Christ that we just have to sit there and smile. It's not at all what the Bible teaches. If you read on into Job 3, Job curses the day he was born. He says that he wishes he'd been a stillborn. And God never rebukes him for it. Job is not a stoic, and Job's God is not a stoic. What do you think Job is doing when he, when he tears his robe and shaves his head and falls to the ground? What do you think he's doing when he takes a broken piece of pottery and scrapes his boils with as he lays there on the ground in ashes? Job's expressing his emotion. He's just lost a child, in fact, 10 of them. He's just lost his business and all his livelihood, and now he's lost his health and is in immense pain. And so by scraping his body with this broken piece of pottery, he's trying to offer himself some relief by his lament in chapter 3. He's trying to offer himself some relief. And as he expresses this emotion, the Lord is okay with that. In fact, he even calls this kind of lament holy. That's why about a third of Israel's songbook is lament. And the Lord commands his people to sing these songs because he knows what we need. Remaining faithful to God through suffering and crying out to Him in anguish are not mutually exclusive. Remaining faithful to God in the midst of suffering and crying out to Him in anguish are not mutually exclusive. In fact, it is the crying out to God in anguish often that allows us to remain faithful in our suffering. That was Christ's experience. As he cried out on the cross, those words from Psalm 22. We'll, we'll hear even a bit more of that this, this afternoon from Psalm 119 and how those words speak of Christ and his faithfulness, his continued delight in the law of God, even in the midst of suffering. And so if you hear this morning and, and Job's trials uh, sound in, in a certain sense all too familiar to you because you have lost a child or because your business has gone under, or because you know what it's like for your body to be in such immense pain that inflicting further pain actually sounds therapeutic. And I bring you good news. Our God is a God who not only allows us to cry out to him as Job does here, but is a God who listens. And as we sang in Psalm 56, holds every tear in his bottle. He writes them in his book. This passage is not calling us to be stoics, it's calling us to be faithful. And that's why the counsel of Job's wife is so inappropriate. She says, curse God and die. Stop holding on to your integrity, curse him and die. That's the exact opposite of Job 1.1, fearing God and shunning evil. And if Job 28 is right, that fearing God and shunning evil is the very heart of wisdom, then that's why he says that she is speaking as one of the foolish women, because folly is the opposite of wisdom. And if wisdom is defined as fearing God and shunning evil, then cursing God and dying, cursing him on our lips, is not wise. She is speaking as one of the foolish women. Because when everything else is falling apart, why would it make any sense to turn away from the one thing that isn't? We don't curse God and die, but we accept from Him even adversity. We hold on to Him as our only hope in the midst of it, trusting that maybe He'll be pleased to use our faithful suffering to once again silence the accuser and to bring Himself glory. This is not an easy thing that God is calling us to. And yet he's not asking us to do anything that he himself has not already done because remember who this passage points to. This is not just about Job, but this is part of the unfolding drama of redemption, part of of the, the sprouting of that little seed that was planted in the ground in Genesis 3.15 and is bursting forth from the ground by the time we come to the Gospels. This is part of the unfolding story of Christ the suffering servant, Christ, the faithful one. God is here giving us in the very early stages of redemptive history, in, in some of the earliest times in Old Testament history, a little picture of what he's going to do in his son. He's giving us a preview and a shadow of Christ, of, of whom God did not say, only do not lay a finger on him, but he was given over to death. Christ, who, unlike Job, didn't have those three friends who at least weep with him for a week, who who did not just shave his head in mourning, but whose beard was ripped from his face, Isaiah 50, who did not just fall to the ground, but was buried in the ground in death. And when Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return, of whom is that sad statement more true than Christ, who even though he possessed the fullness of heaven's riches, was born from his mother's womb in nakedness. And even though he is the only one on whom death had no right to lay a claim, he did die in nakedness and in shame, exposed on the cross for everyone to see. Becoming a byword. As people said, he's suffering in that way because of his sin. As he suffered on the cross alone, crying out to God, yet remaining faithful. Beloved, he is the one who calls us to accept both good and bad from God's hand. The one who calls us to suffer faithfully is the same one who already suffered faithfully for us, and he is the same one who holds our tears in his bottle because he's also our faithful high priest who is able to sympathize with us in whatever suffering we might endure. So behold the Christ. This morning, behold the greater Job, the one who suffered for us and was then raised up unto glory, the one who remained faithful in the midst of that affliction. Behold Jesus, the greater Job, and cling to him in faith and repentance, and then embrace the privilege of sharing with him in silencing the accuser by remaining faithful to God in whatever suffering he may call us to share. Amen. Father in heaven, we know that you are good, even though you brought adversity against Job and against Christ. We know that you were able to use this for your glory, to silence the accuser, yet, Lord, we still have a a hard time submitting to the trials that you may bring our way. And so we ask that you would help us this morning by directing our eyes to Christ, the suffering servant. We ask that you'd help uh, help us to fix our eyes on, on Christ as we are called to share with him in his suffering for your glory and even for our good. And Lord, we pray that in all of this, you would let those words of Romans 16, verse 20 be true of us so that you, the God of peace, would crush Satan underneath our feet. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.